0: On the 3rd of January 1841, a young 22-year-old American called Herman Melville, he boarded the Accusnet. Um, Melville had read some famous accounts of the uh, incredible adventures encountered on whaling boats, and he wanted to see what all the fuss was about. He wanted to encounter the work and the drama, um, and he wanted to encounter the trade, which is incredibly important um, for America at the time, and he wanted to encounter it firsthand. So he was a teacher, he was a sailor, he was a writer, and he would spend 18 months aboard this boat, and he would use his experiences to compose a very famous story. Has anyone not heard of Moby Dick in this room? Excellent. So, basically, everyone's either has read it or too ashamed to admit it, which I'm absolutely fine with, because I think it's one of the greatest uh, American novels. Uh, There's a genre called, like, the Great American uh, Novel, and I think Moby Dick is, uh, uh, for me, possibly the best of them. Uh, D. H. Lawrence... Um, He said it is one of the strangest and most wonderful books in the world. And he also said it is the greatest book of the sea ever. Why am I talking about Moby Dick? Well, I think Melville's account of Captain Ahab pursuing this great white whale does a really good job of illustrating some features in our next little passage in 1 Peter so if you can turn to 1 Peter we've made it to chapter 2 which is absolutely thrilling Um, so we're in 1 Peter chapter 2 and we're looking at verse 1 and it says this therefore rid yourselves of all malice all deceit hypocrisy envy and slander of every kind like newborn babies crave pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up in your salvation. Now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. There's some very rich word pictures there. Um, and and um, I just thought uh, Moby Dick sort of... Un- pack some of them really well. So last week, if you were here with us, we had a particular focus on two words, agape and rima, and they were God's love and God's word. And Peter goes on from this idea of love and word And he starts by listing some behavioural traits that are the antithesis of love. This is what anti-love looks like. If you want to know what is anti-God and anti-Christ, these are the behaviours that uh, uh, Peter will tell you. And it's fascinating that of all the evil... Peter could describe, and if you have lived in this world for any time at all, you will be aware there are some incredible variants of evil. Here, Peter focuses very particularly on human interaction. All of these sins that he lists requires someone else uh, for you to be talking to and dealing. These are all sins found in the community. And so I want you to put a pin in that thought and hold it there, because we are going to delve into um, Moby Dick. Now, in my head, these are some incredible passages, but sometimes when you read them out loud, they are, yeah, um, it it sometimes stumbles. So we will see how Moby Dick, written um, in the middle of the 19th century, translates into 21st century Bubish. And now the time of tide has come. The ship casts off her cables, and from the deserted wharf, the uncheered ship of Tarshish, all careening, glides to sea. Does anyone guess what he's talking about when he says Tarshish? Might ring a bell with some of you. It's in the Bible. Jonah. Excellent. So uh, this is a moment pausing on the story of Jonah in the story of Moby Dick. That ship, my friends, was the first of recorded smugglers. The contraband was Jonah. But the sea rebels. He will not bear the wicked burden. A dreadful storm comes on the ship, and it is likely to break it. But now when the boatswain calls all hands to lighten her, boxes, bales, and jars are clattering Overboard! And when the wind is shrieking, the men are yelling and every plank thunders with trampling feet right over Jonah's head. In all this raging tumult, Jonah sleeps his hideous sleep. He sees no black sky and raging sea, feels no reeling tum- timbers and little hears or heeds he the far rush of the mighty whale which even now with open mouth is cleaving the seas after him. That's a rich picture of uh, Jonah that um, I just uh, find incredibly fascinating. I, shipmates, and so this is a seaman preacher, you know, he's sort of preaching to maritime guys. And uh, perhaps I will be referring to you as shipmates rather than uh, friends or anything in future. I, shipmates, Jonah was gone down into the sides of the ship. A berth in the cabin as I have taken it, and he was fast asleep. But the frightened master comes to him and shrieks in his dead ear, What meanest thou, O sleeper, arise? Startled from his lethargy by that direful cry, Jonah staggers to his feet. And stumbling to the deck, grasps a shroud to look out upon the sea. But at that moment he is sprung upon by a panther billow leaping over the bulwarks. Wave after wave leaps into the ship and, finding no speedy vent, runs roaring fore and aft till the mariners come nigh to drowning while yet afloat. So this ship is taken on water and there is trouble afoot for those aboard. And ever as the white moon shows her a frightened face from the steep gullies in the blackness overhead, aghast Jonah sees the rearing bowsprit pointing high upward, but soon beat downward against the tormented deep. So the boat is rocking, and the stern is high and then low, and these guys are in fear of of their lives. Terrors upon terrors run shouting through his soul. In all his cringing attitudes, the God fugitive is now too plainly known. It's a great title, God fugitive. I think there's another sermon in there. The God fugitive is now plainly known. The sailors mark him. More and more certain grow their suspicions of him. And at last, fully to test the truth, um, they refer the whole matter to heaven and they fall to casting lots to see for whose cause this great tempest was upon them. And you know very well that the lot is cast to Jonah. Before Ahab And Ishmael and Queequeg um, and the other guys on board uh, the ship go out to find Moby Dick. They sit and listen to this preacher. And this preacher uh, gives them this story of Jonah. And part of this story is that moment when the storm comes and something of God's fury seems to be uh, held up against this ship. And the the sailors who are used to storms are in fear of their life. And there is that desire. And I don't know if you've ever seen any other kind of uh, ship film, but they throw stuff Overboard, because that will lighten the ship and stop it getting subsumed by the wave and they throw stuff out and it's not enough and they wonder what they can do and then it suddenly occurs to them that there is someone that needs to go as well that the physical stuff overboard is not enough that there is someone that they must uh, throw off because that is the thing that's dragging the ship down And if you know the story, you'll know eventually Jonah uh, just encourages, throw me overboard, and that will calm the seas. That will stop your ship being taken down to Davy Jones's locker. And as we think of that storm, as we think of the uh, fury of the waves, as we think of that ship about to go down, and we imagine those things being thrown off in a desperate attempt to keep the ship afloat, it seems to me the perfect picture of our relationship with all sorts of malicious patterns of conduct that the world is happy with but is disastrous for our community here in Bubish. There are all sorts of ways of behaving That out there is perfectly acceptable, but here they are dangerous and they threaten our survival. And Peter brings to our mind a number of things. And he starts by malice, and this is a general feeling of, a a, a general disposition of evil. And and all of us stand back and go, of course I don't feel any evil to my fellow parishioners. I am pure as the driven snow, but then he drills down into some details which, if any of us have got any self-awareness, we should maybe feel um, a little tender. Deceit and hypocrisy. Now, these are harsh words, but they cover a whole multitude of different ways of behaving. We say things to manipulate other people's thinking and how they see us and how they see themselves. We so often project the idea that we love Jesus. You know, he is our best friend and the Holy Spirit just walks with us every day. But our private lives are rotten and shipwrecked inside. We come and say, you know, I was, I was just spending time in the Word uh, and I really felt this. When really you'd opened the app on your phone sort of while you're on the toilet and just took the first text you found and that was the only time you bothered to look at the Bible at all the entire week. Or we talk about other things that they, this and project the idea it 's an entire habit of ours to pray and read the Bible and fast when really our daily habits have got very little space for those things in at all, and we deceive other people, and we are hypocritical about our own walk with God, and it damages lives it's not. A harmless uh, white lie, but it is something that you are doing bad, and it is something that is received badly as well. And then going on that, uh, Peter lifts, um, Peter details envy and slander, and these attack another blessings. Other people can uh, uh, be blessed by God. And yet, we cannot handle it. When someone on the most superficial turns up in a nice car, and instead of saying, oh, God bless them for uh, that bonus at work or whatever, you go, well, I see how they spend their money. I give mine to the church, but obviously uh, they don't. Or they enjoy a nice holiday, or... Uh, they have a sort of well-behaved kids, and we want to snipe and drag down them and somehow undermine the goodness that they're enjoying. When someone enjoys some success, whether it's an answer to prayer or something else, and we take it down a peg by uh, making snide comments to those around us, Isn't it terrible how she looks after her kids? Or I cannot believe how he spends his money. All these are things that we can do in our community about someone either not in the room or uh, in some sort of passive aggressive sentence. And it is damaging. The world can uh, uh, accommodate that, because it's, that's all it knows, but we cannot. There should be no room for this sort of behaviour, no room for slander and envy and deceit of hypocrisy. <laughs> what people know of you and think of you, it should be true here. If people have an idea of you and you know it's false, then there is a problem. People should know your struggles and your strengths. You should be honest here. If you can't be honest here, you're stuffed and we're stuffed. And so Peter singles these things out and goes, if you are not honest and frank and clear with people, you're going to ruin the community you're part of. It's not just you are out of order, but the whole community is out of kilter. And it is damaging. And so Peter says, get rid of them. And I think if Herman Melville was preaching this morning, he would say, throw it overboard. Get rid of it. It has no place for you here. Forget projecting ideas of your godliness and your goodness and your uh, uh, fairness. Let us see who you really are. Show us what is actually going on. All this bad behaviour weighs us down, and we are threatened to be capsized unless each one of us is honest and true. Our conversations should be buoyant with honesty and truth and love. We should be able to join other people in their blessings. When a prayer is answered, when a... I'm not even sure the newest registration plate, but whatever it is, when someone rolls up in one of those, our hearts should go, praise God that they've been blessed. When something good happens to them, rather than bat bite and snipe and whine, when someone takes up the mic at 11 o'clock and says, you know what, God has done this for me, they go, well, I don't know why. You, don't, you live your life so badly, Monday to Saturday. I don't see why you should be blessed. That sort of reaction is anti Christ. It's anti love and it's anti God. I forgot about this. So, Joni, you remember that? And here we go. So, After Peter lists these vices that kind of submerge Christians and drag churches down um, onto the rocks, thankfully, Peter moves on to something positive. Now, if this was a standard Jewish letter or the Apostle Paul was dealing with it, there would be a list of positive behaviours. So, if you've read or familiar with uh, the Apostle Paul's letters and his epistles, often he will give you a list of bad ways to behave and a way, load of ways of good ways to behave. And he kind of uh, uses one to balance the other, and it's a very uh, um, famous sort of Jewish technique. But Peter doesn't want to stray too far from his theme. His central theme is God's word here, and how important it is. And he says, and he calls out to everyone, "Be like a newborn baby." Be like a newborn baby." In one particular area, in a specific thing, you are to be like a crying infant. Have you seen how babies demand milk at every hour of the day and they have an insatiable appetite for it? They, um, especially if they're breastfed again and again, they just will go down for an hour or two and then they'll wake up ready for more and they have an enormous, insatiable appetite that you can never quench. You wonder where all this milk goes and yet they keep coming back for more and it is their only diet. They don't have a smorgasbord of cheese and meats and bread and other things. It is one thing that they consume. And they do it uh, with incredible rapidity. Again and again, they drink that milk. And Peter tells us this morning, that picture you have of a baby that keeps wanting milk, that picture is directly applicable to what a Christian should feel about the word of God. Now, there are other New Testament um, passages that talk about newborn babies. And it essentially says we should move on from being newborn babies to adults. um, And that you start off with milk and then go on to something more solid. But that's often talking about theology. And Peter is talking about God's word here. And essentially he's saying don't grow up. Stay a newborn baby. Have that appetite for God's word forever forever. Don't ever think that you've moved past it. Don't ever think that books about the Bible are as good as the Bible. Don't ever think that lectures about the Bible are as good as getting your hands dirty in it. Don't ever think that other stuff can substitute for it or are better than it. God's word should be our milk as we are newborn babies. And this brought to mind another passage uh, in Moby Dick. And um, here we go. Had you followed Captain Ahab down into his cabin after the school that took place on the night succeeding that wild ratification of his purpose with his crew? You would have seen him go down to a locker and bringing out a large wrinkled roll of yellowish sea charts, he spread them out before him on his screwed down table. Then, seating himself before it, you would have seen him intently study the various lines and shadings which there met his eye and with slow but steady pencil trace. Um, traced additional courses over the spaces that before were blank. At intervals he would refer to piles of old logbooks beside him wherein were set down the seasons and places in which on various former of of various ships sperm whales had been captured or seen. Thus, while employed, the heavy pewter lamp suspended in chain over his head rocked with the motion of the ship and it kept throwing shifting gleams and shadows on his wrinkled brow, till it seemed that while he himself was marking out lines and courses on the charts, some invisible pencil was tracing lines and courses upon that deeply marked chart of his forehead. But it was not this night in particular that the solitude of this cabin, Ahab thus pondered over his charts. Every night they were brought out. Almost every night, some pencil marks marks were effaced and others were substituted. For with the charts of all four oceans before him, Ahab was threading a maze of currents and eddies with a view to the more certain accomplishment of that monomaniac thought of his soul. And so we have here... Ahab, absolutely obsessed. Now, I recognise he's actually obsessed in revenge. The whale had taken out his leg and he wanted revenge. But if you could just move past that thought and uh, just take in that picture of his intensity in studying those mats, his intensity of wanting to find his goal, of his intensity of wanting to go and get that whale... He is consumed by that craving. Everything is secondary. There is nothing else in his life that takes precedence over this plotting and charting to find this sperm whale. It dictates his steps. It has dictated this journey on the ship Pequod. And what it has done, it has drawn others in. Captain Ahab has drawn other peoples into this uh, fatal quest to find Moby Dick. As we hear of Ahab's tenacity, I think Peter would recognise the first Rima that he wants the Christians to have. Instead of maliciously competing with Christians, instead of jostling for position, we are to have a hunger for God's word. We are to chase it like no other appetite we know. It is to be our goal in life. Because we realise it is the only true means to progress. There is nothing else in life that offers up life like the word of God. On Wednesday, Sam and I were really privileged to have the prospective people who were going to get dunked in South Water Lake at our house. And we had some uh, great discussions uh, uh, um, about what they could expect and initially there were some fuzzy definitions you know um, I'm not sure that they were used to quite the direct uh, sort of Spanish Inquisition questions um, that I was directing their way um, but it was obvious as we were talking to them that these like, guys love God and wanted to move on in their relationship with him That even though uh, uh, they didn't answer every question theologically perfect, that there was something going on inside that was beautiful and that that we wanted to honour. And one, and this thrilled me for sermon purposes, uh, was saying that you sort of new life was definitely in them. And why? because they voluntarily read the Bible. You know, it wasn't something imposed on them. They didn't feel uh, religiously obliged to do it. But they actually picked up the Bible because they wanted to see what it said. And Peter would nod his head. And the Apostle Peter would say, that's what I'm talking about. The Gospels and the Scriptures, they aren't light entertainment. They aren't fortune cookies. They aren't horoscopes. They're not just historical texts to tear apart and choose which bits that sound appealing. These are the word of God and they are for the diligent believer. They are for the monomaniac Ahab who wants to find his way forward. They are for the person that is passionate about drawing near to God, about growing in a way that God appreciates. Not just a way that other Christians think is amazing, but in a way that God wants. And in a way, when we read Scripture, that the wider community of Christians um, appreciates. And you can see it. This is what it looks like. We read it at home when we're not at church. We read it voluntarily because we know it's important. We have apps on our phone, some that we actually paid for. You know, most of us love a free app, but yeah, there's good stuff, I think, you only have to pay for. So we've got apps that we've paid for on our phone, and that if you go to the uh, uh, most used apps list on our phones, it is not right at the bottom saying never used. We pour over our study Bibles. They have notes and markings in. They have questions and underlining and circling in. We take up reading plans every day with Jesus, our daily bread. Uh, Don Carson's Amazing for the Love of God. We listen to it on audiobook. David Suchet of Hercule Poirot fame does an excellent NIV reading. And we've bought that at cost to ourselves, and we listen to it when we're driving in the car or, uh, uh, or um, just other times not because we have to do something about it, but because we are interested in what God says. We commit passages to memory. We can give out verses with the references. And our Bible journals are filled with colours and drawings. We gave those out to the ladies on Mother's Day um, and it's great to see one or two littered around with uh, uh, the startings of thoughts. The Holy Spirit takes God's word and uses them to move our focus and our priorities and our very heart. We are here and then we are Uh, enjoy God's revelation, and then we are moved by it. We are changed by it. We are refined by it. We are transformed by it. Peter says, uh, essentially, that all these negative behaviours are things to get rid of, and then we read God's word, and we are moved on from them. And suddenly we know what love looks like. Not because you've just had a guy up the front shout at you for one reason or another, but because you've read it in the text. You know that the Apostle Paul and the Apostle Peter, they knew what love looks like, and you have adopted their perspective. Because of what God has spoken, we know what love is. Not what our culture says, not what the experts say, but what God says is love. And we see how to exhibit it because that changes. It changes with seasons and it changes with years. So, we have now thrown hypocrisy and slander and envy and malice overboard. And we've embraced that monomaniac Ahab passion for the gospel. And uh, I love the third verse. We are treated to deliciousness. The richness of scripture just draws you in sometimes. And um, I love the idea that God tastes good. That we can savour him and enjoy him. Taste and see, Peter says in verse 3. And he's quoting Psalm 34. What a wonderful position we are where we can taste and see that God is good. Peter reflects on this extraordinary flavour of the Lord and uh, who helps us jettison deceit and causes us to speak helpfully. I think Peter has in mind a lot. I'm not sure uh, even a whole series of sermons could uh, captivate the idea of the sweet-tasting nature of God. I think there is that initial sweetness Of salvation, you know the moment when you first come to Christ, and suddenly you realise it's all true—that all these things that you were thought were wild and deluded and crazy—it's all true, and it's all meaningful and it's all helpful, and it just transforms you. And there is that enduring tang for believers as we discover more about the Word of God, how wonderfully uh, full it is of all sorts of images. And then we discover the Holy Spirit and and get to contribute to meetings with with, uh, tongues and prophecies. And it just goes on and on. I wonder if you remember... first time you responded to the Holy Spirit and the excitement and quickening beat of the heart that sort of stimulation of all the senses suddenly the life that was dull and boring gets very excited Um, there is something wonderful about meeting someone that's become a Christian recently they are contagious they haven't been bogged down by Leviticus in the Bible they just think that the Bible's full of really helpful constantly exhilarating truths um, and that if only someone would listen to them on the bus or at work they too will become Christians and join in some of us over time have got a little jaded and you know um, our experience hasn't been that constantly but that uh, uh, excitement of the new Christian is absolutely wonderful and uh, uh, in, uh, in, incredible. And I love it. Like, so I'm pastor here, and, and we see sort of new Christians come, and they go, Kevin, have you read this? And I'm like, I've been a Christian for a long time. I've, it's unlikely you'll find a bit in the Bible that, that surprises me. And then I have to go, get over yourself, enjoy their excitement, just enjoy it sort of go, wow, that's amazing. I love what you've uh, brought out there. And there, there is just a, they are tasting and seeing that the Lord is good. And it should gladden our hearts when it comes. And then if we work hard at it, and then sometimes it takes some homework, but retaining that excitement. Because that excitement is a one-off introductory offer. You know, it isn't a case of God lures you in with excitement and then just kills you with boredom for the rest of your Christian walk. (laughs) The Lord offers it to you. And we try and explore it here. We try and give moments where people just uh, pray out loud and bring a prophecy. Uh, We try and offer moments of challenging you. You know, it's great to be a new Christian, but it's great also to grow up and start to take your place in the church start to preach and lead worship it's uh, start to uh, uh, participate in home groups and do readings at Christmas and all the other opportunities we have on this, on a, uh, uh, as part of a Christian community these things can take a little while to come out but they are delightful as well And they are something that should excite us and tantalise our taste buds. Even the most vintage believer, even the most long-in-the-tooth Christian among us, should be able to wax lyrical of the wonders of worship. If you are sat down or have got your hands in the pockets as Tim is strumming out Amazing Grace, then there's only one person to blame for that. And it's certainly not Tim. There are the joys of fellowship. There are the joys of home group and prayer meeting and coffee after church. There are the joys of uh, sitting in the calf with Barry on a Thursday. And if you are far from that, that's because you've let your own flame burn cold. And God interferes in your life constantly. And if you are alert to it, it will gladden your heart. If you are aware of the blessings of God, then again, it will add fuel to the flame. There is a goodness and a sweetness in our relationship with God that should constantly tantalise our senses. Last reading from Moby Dick. It says this. As I sat there in that now lonely room, the fire burning low in that mild stage when, after its first intensity, it has warmed the air, it then only glows to be looked at. The evening shades and phantoms gathering round the casements and peering up in upon us, silent, solitary too. The storm burnt booming without in solemn swells, and I began to be sensible of strange feelings. I felt a melting in me. No more than my splintered heart and maddened hand were turned against the wolfish world. This soothing savage had redeemed it. There he sat, his very indifferent, speaking a nature in which there lurked no civilized hypocrisies and bland deceits. This is Ishmael talking about the, uh, the harpoonist, Quee Craig, and I find it fascinating that as he um, goes into this friendship that he talks about hypocrisies and deceits, the very things that Peter uh, hated. Wild he was, a very sight of sights to see, yet I began to feel myself mysteriously drawn towards him. And those same things that would have repelled most others, they were the very magnets that thus drew, drew me. I'll try a pagan friend, thought I, since Christian kindness has proved but hollow courtesy. I wonder if that could be said for our friendship. It's just hollow courtesy. If there yet lurked any ice of indifference toward me and the pagan's breast, this pleasant genial smoke, they uh, shared some sort of peace pipe together, and we're not encouraging tobacco use, uh, but it's part of the story. Um, As we shared this genial smoke, soon thawed it out and left us cronies. He seemed to take me He seemed to take to me quite as naturally and unbiddenly as I to him. And when our smoke was over, he pressed his forehead against mine. He pressed his forehead against mine, clasped me round the waist, and said that henceforth we were married. Meaning in his country's phrase that we were bosom friends. He would gladly die for me. If need should be, in a countryman this sudden flame of friendship would have been far too premature, a thing to be distrusted. But in this simple savage, the old rules would not apply. After supper and another social chat and a smoke, we went to our room together. He made me a present of his embalmed head and took out his enormous tobacco wallet and, groping under the tobacco, drew out some $30 in silver, then, spreading them on the table and mechanically dividing them into two portions, pushed one of them towards me, and he said, it was mine. So our hero Ishmael, the person that kind of writes the uh, uh, words of Moby Dick, he discovers this friendship with Queequeg. On the face of it, he is a strangely marked immigrant. He is someone other and foreign and someone ominous. He is someone to be cautious of. But this is a generous man, and he is a skillful harpooner. He is an awesome ally to have. And the benefits may just begin with a shrunken head, But they continue. He has this companionship and solace. When the waves are rough, this guy stands beside him. He is an ally when all things go wrong. When that whale rears its head, Queequeg is there by his side. When Captain Ahab rails and leads them into danger, Queequeg is there by his side. And Queequeg is for. Ishmael, the antithesis of Christian hypocrisy. Ishmael has seen Christians say nice things to each other's faces, but then backbite when their backs are turned. He has seen bad behaviour, and in this guy finds an honest, open relationship. This is love. At the end, Queequeg for sees his death and he uh, makes provision for his death and ultimately Queequeg he saves Ishmael in the story of Moby Dick. What Queequeg does means that Ishmael uh, escapes with his life. When we talk about church, and sin, and judgment, and discipline, and Bible reading, we can easily have our eyes roll back into our heads, and yawn, and shuffle around uncomfortably, and say, yeah, I'm not really sure about all that, Kevin. We can be burdened with demands, going, am I really expected to make all these different meetings you keep putting on, Kevin? Surely one a week, one a month's enough. And I can't keep all these different rules and laws and uh, attributes you like and those vices, that just seems to just explain my life rather than the other side. Is this, all these ways of behaving, is that what paradise and eternity look like? Standing without my hands in my pockets during worship and looking attentive during the sermon is that it but peter reminds us that god's word and everything else they are not ends in themselves they are details of our saving friendship at the core of all christians what we do it's the understanding that our fellowship with Father, Son, and Spirit trumps everything. That that is the highest value. That is the best thing to chase. That taste and see that the Lord is good. That is the thing that drives us, and it is why we do everything else. It is why we pour over those maps with Ahab. It is because they lead us into a greater relationship with God. And that is the sweetest thing. That is the eternal thing. That is the thing that will refine our character and cause us to be loved to those around us. It has a perfect and exquisite flavour that we Christians can't help but chase. Please bow your heads. Heavenly Father, we thank you yet again for Peter's Wise words, and we thank you that they've been preserved for us today. Lord God, I pray that we would throw overboard all those attributes and behaviors that damage ourselves and this community. Mm-hmm. Heavenly Father, I pray that we would um, cultivate a appetite for your word because we know it's the word of life and light. And Lord God, I pray, that we would never get so bogged down in the detail, that we forget to taste and see that you are good. Lord God, I pray that you would help us be healthy and vibrant Christians and a healthy and vibrant Christian community. God, I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.